Steve, happy Thursday. How are you, bud? Uh, doing good, man. Just uh, Idaho announced, which really, like a couple weeks ago, I thought 100% this was going to happen, but then came out of nowhere. They did a 21-day total like lockdown, you know, non-essential yeah. businesses, all that stuff. So um, pretty interesting. We're fortunately able to still ship. You know, we can just have one person there at the warehouse, and FedEx will pick up so we can continue to, to operate, although be at uh, – you know, not at full capacity, but we can. We're fortunately, as of yesterday, literally got caught up on pack orders, uh, so everything's like caught up as could be. And um, yeah, it's, but pretty interesting. Interesting times. It was pretty, um, I think, aggressive, uh, but by our governor yeah. uh, to do it, just because cases are pretty mild. But I'm sure they know things that I don't. And um, yeah, so yeah, see what happens. Yeah, welcome to the club, man. Yeah. All kinds of states are doing it, so <laughs> know, about time yeah. you get with the times. Yeah. <laughs> My, uh, about the only thing I've been, uh, just talk very quickly on this, is I, I can't wait for testing to come out, and, the, and then they're talking about having the, an antibodies test that you can do at home. So it sounds like you could potentially prick your finger, send it in, and find out if you've got the antibodies so that you've already had coronavirus and you're now immune to it, right? Um, mm. So there's still a lot of information to come out at sounds like but once that comes out then they have a much better understanding of how widespread this was is my hunch is uh as more information comes out that the you know the actual death rate of total cases versus people passing away is is not going to be that much different than the flu you know you're going to mm-hmm. be going to be down there quite a bit we'll see what happens though yes yeah. again encourage everyone to, to take it serious because there's not enough information out to to know exactly one way or the other but it sure, it sure is uh, leaning towards, um, you know, this might all be a giant overreaction in some regards. Um, I yeah. don't know. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, man. The, definitely still... the the hospitals don't have the capacity, so right. you know the whole flattening the curve and slowing this down in the hopes that the hospitals increase capacity, yeah, um, increase supplies and capacity. Then, then once that's done, you know. Uh, getting back to work and getting the economy going again, I think is pretty, uh, pretty essential because otherwise yeah. it's going to take years to recover from if, if everything's shut down for, you know, three to four months. Right. Yeah. And then it's, yeah, I mean, I still go back and forth, like sometimes by the day, sometimes by the hour on this is all necessary yeah. versus this is all overreaction. But I mean, you'll get like say New York, which can't quite replicate itself across the country just based on density, but let's let like hypothetical, you know, if that were to spread further and the whole country's in that situation, I mean, that could be, yeah, that could be terrible. So you do have to take precautions to make sure that that doesn't happen to some extent. So, yeah. And it's, uh, well, I don't, people don't want to hear us rant about this. So let's get on to hunting (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Before we do though, uh, Steve, I just wanted to find out when are you scheduling your fishing lessons? Oh, <laughs> so yeah, I told Mark before we recorded, I, uh, I was hanging out with, uh, or yeah, yeah, just yesterday playing with my daughter. And, uh, if you've listened to this, I took her fishing, um, last weekend and I asked her if she wanted to go fishing again this weekend. And she's like, yeah, but daddy, I think you need someone to teach you how to fish. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's got her preschool teachers, Kim. And she's like, I'll ask Kim if she can teach you. <laughs> like, wow. It was so just, I was dying. Yeah. Out of the mouth so of the kids. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone needs to teach you because we didn't catch any fish and something's, you know, you must not know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, so funny. That's awesome. Yeah. That's good. 
Um, all right, let's dive into some questions. Wes wrote in and says, I'm just wondering if there are any techniques to limit or remove condensation at altitude to keep from getting sleeping bags and other gear wet in your shelter. I know it's all about better airflow, cross ventilation, etc. But just hoping you guys had a few tricks or more uh, tips to share. So it sounds like both reducing condensation and then removing it, which are kind of related, obviously, but can mm-hmm. be two separate things. Um, you know, I, it's removing condensation is something I never thought about, but then I started to see, gosh, I can't remember. It wasn't a hunting guy, but some, some guy in the backpacking world actually carried a tiny little sponge, like a three inch by two inch sponge. And if he had huh. condensation issues, he would literally kind of like wipe it down, like wipe the walls of his shelter down. Cause he was using a single wall shelter. And he would Mm -hmm. wipe it down, let that sponge soak up the moisture, squeeze it out, and then just kind of do that really quick before he packed it up. Um, In the past, anytime I've had condensation issues, I just always kind of shake it out, you know, before um, you pack it up. So I thought that that was interesting even to see someone actually uh, carry a sponge to soak up and almost dry out that gear before it's packed away. So in in terms of removing it, if you have it, I thought that that was an interesting idea because a little sponge weighs nothing. Um, yeah yeah an ounce at most yeah yeah but ideally let's talk about making sure you don't get condensation in the first place so what are some thoughts there steve oh man um i you know as far as i don't know there's a whole lot that you can do while you're out there in the field um outside of like site selection uh if you know anytime you can be underneath a tree canopy uh, like especially with my bivy sack, I'll, uh, I notice a huge difference. So if I don't use the tarp, right, uh, if I just have the bivy sack and I'm out and it's just open sky above me versus if I tuck myself underneath a tree with some overhanging limbs that are only like four or five feet above me, that makes a, a substantial difference. Uh, unfortunately with any type of tent that, you know, needs a, an area, right. You're not going to be able to tuck right up underneath a tree. So, but that's definitely something I've noticed. Uh, you know, you could also, double-edged sword here um and and there's that's the the pro and con here is yeah he's absolutely right increase ventilation through the tent when it's cold increase ventilation just means your tent's going to be colder though so you got to weigh the two Mm -hmm. um uh so yeah if you put yourself like up on a ridge where the wind can blow through versus down a little hole uh next to some water there's going to be a lot more condensation there right um so site selection can play or definitely does play a role in that Usually, though, it's not, you know, I mean, you're struggling so much to find a flat spot out there to pitch your tent that you don't really get a choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is what it is. So it really comes down to shelters and some are just depends on the fabric and the design and the airflow. I mean, there's a a lot of factors that go into it. And and sometimes you can't really kind of get an idea by like looking at a picture of the tent, like how when the when the rain flies on, how far is the rain fly off the ground? Is it touching the ground? Um, do they have vents kind of up in the top, which to be honest, like I've no, I don't know how much of a difference those make or not. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's mixed there. Yeah. I think it's really mixed. I mean, I think if the wind is blowing and then air is like pushing through those vents, that's great. Right. But that's also the same case of, you know, if the wind's blowing, it's, yeah, still it doesn't have vents, it's, it's still airflow kicking in through the bottom. So, um, but I've definitely had tents that, uh, were absolutely like, you know, better than others uh you know the worst one i could think of is that a big sky wisp i had um that thing was just a 
condensation nightmare. It seemed like even on nights, like super dry nights, that it would still condensate. Um, and then Hillebergs have always surprised me how little they condensate. Um, like my that Anhan two I had for years was a great tent and it wasn't terrible. And then um, as I mentioned, and I guess maybe this hasn't aired yet. Our shit, our tarp shelter podcast <laughs> it has not did, but, yeah i was gonna mention yeah. that so we've so, been recording yeah. uh, a series that we're calling pack essentials and so uh, it's just you and i steve kind of going through gear and essential gear and kind of taking a high level there's a lot of stuff we've talked about in passing but we don't have like a high level resource for it. here's a really good episode talking about shelters pros and cons high level styles types and specific models and so yeah we've been recording that series but it's not quite out yet steve it'll probably be It'll be April, May. So that stuff's coming um, in terms of an in-depth look at shelters, discussion on different types of shelters, uh, yeah, condensation and other pros and cons. But yeah, not out yet. <laughs> so I guess the real, like in my, I'd switch to this at uh, Jimmy's Tarp, Granite Mountain Tarp that's just completely open. It's like uh, two of the walls, or not even walls, right? It's just completely open tarp. And, then, uh, and it has such great ventilation that uh, it's, you know, in the morning I have, it takes, um, you know, worst case scenario, do I get condensation? I'd probably say 60, 70% of the nights there's either none or it's so minimal that it's not an issue. Um, and it makes it really nice when you're, when you're hunting, you know, with, from a mobile standpoint of packing up every morning, you're not packing up this soaking wet tent. Um, so yeah, I guess that's my thing. I, I don't know how to, um, yeah, I don't have any great tips other than, uh, it's a little bit of a trial and error thing, and then there are some things you can do if you have a choice when you're out there in the field of where you're pitching your shelter. Um, but I, I don't know. How about yeah. you, Mark? Anything? Yeah, there? I don't know. I mean, it's it's what you said. It's site selection. It's airflow. But as you mentioned, that's a pro and con. Um, I guess one thing that maybe people overlook, I don't, I don't know about overlook, but it's just worth thinking about is the your shelter and its shape and size is going to be a factor in terms of how much of an issue condensation is. And I don't mean how much condensation the shelter builds, but how much that affects you. So, you know, the more um, space you have, if there's condensation, you still have space to kind of move around maybe without potentially be constantly bumping up into it. Um, it, It's one of those situations if you're trying to, you know, change clothes, how much room do you have? What's the pitch of the wall, that type of thing. Um, so that maybe goes back into just looking at your needs. And again, this really leads to the discussion that we're going to have in the pack essential series, but your needs, your preferences, how much time are you spending in the shelter? What style of hunt are you doing? Um, you know, are you just packing up every night and moving every day or you have a base camp? Do you need more space? So uh, there's just different considerations there. I think to think through in terms of, you know, cause he mentioned specifically keeping your sleeping bag, um, from getting wet and other gear wet. So sometimes just having space to not be so crammed in a shelter that has condensation is going to make a difference on how much that condensation affects you. I mean, may go into even your, at least a consideration for your sleeping bag choice, um, whether it's down synthetic, whether it's treated down, whether you're using a bivy to help add protection. So there's certain things you can think about as well that kind of are, ancillary but related topics to condensation and other gear and how that's going to affect you yeah one thing i was gonna say is um you know i think a one you know two-man tent's gonna have more condensation just because you got two guys in there two guys body heat two guys breathing 
um, you know, depends on the, the size. It's obviously just like uh, person per square inch of fabric. Um, but in general, two people tents going to con- con- condensate worse. And the other thing I'd say is it's <laughs> condensation is just annoying. Uh, yeah. It's just it's kind of like a mosquito, right? It's not actually going to do any harm or damage. They're just fr- it's just freaking annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, you're never going to have so much condensation that your down bag is no longer going to perform or it's a safety uh, issue really. Yeah. It's not a safety issue at all. It's just wake up in the morning and your shoulder and your head rub up against it or in wor- like worst case scenarios. I've definitely had like condensation dripping off the ceiling and like hitting me in the forehead or something. In the water overnight, torture. You know? Yeah. Um, but the, again, more annoying than, than like actual safety issue. Right. Uh, a very, very common scene, uh, for me hunting and hunting with my buddies is, we pack up tent in the, in the, you know, pack up camp in the morning and then late afternoon sun comes out. All of us are laying all of our gear out and drying it out. Mm-hmm. So it's a very common thing and just something you have to deal with. But again, more, more annoying than it is, um, a danger. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess it goes back to like, even years ago, I remember the first time I tried a bag that had the hydrophobic or treated down, um, I was actually really impressed at the loft that it kept because there was a certain shelter I was trying that year as well. This is probably five, six years ago. Um, That was kind of a hybrid. So it was a double wall up top, but kind of a single wall at the foot end. And there was quite a bit of condensation at the foot end and where my sleeping bag through the night had taken on that moisture. That that water repellent down did a really good job at keeping loft because the bottom end of that bag got quite wet, but it didn't, you know, it didn't collapse. It performed well. I didn't get cold. So it it, it was a kind of a interesting test, if you will, almost unintentionally of that stuff that can be pretty impressive. Yeah. I've been doing those down jacket tests and stuff like that. It'd be fun to do. A, I've, I was tempted to like put one on and jump in the shower and just see how well it holds up under like really, really wet conditions. Yeah. Uh, be fun to do that same thing with one of my sleeping bags and see like i think i've got an older mountain hardware bag that wouldn't have uh treated down and then and then grab one of my newer quilts and do a comparison because i've never actually done that to see the performance of the stuff all right joe wrote in um when you were out hunting and looking for a spot to camp do you try to hide your camp so that other hunters in the area don't spot it and mess with your stuff have you ever had someone mess with your stuff while you're out hunting and your gear is back at camp or do you try to intentionally put your camp in the open so that someone sees it and maybe they even leave to leave that area because they know someone else is already hunting in that area um man i don't know that i've thought about this specifically at all at least for um having camp set up call it in the back country. So there's been times where let's say I do have a road-based camp or something like that and kind of leave in camp, leave in gear at the truck. I I will try and just kind of lock things up in the truck as much as I can. So like maybe if I leave my shelter up, I will go ahead and throw my sleeping bag or some other gear in the truck and lock it. But in terms of truly, you know, having a spike camp or a backcountry camp and leaving that, I've honestly never really given it two thoughts on hiding it or worried about people messing with my stuff um yeah yeah I, I absolutely have <laughs> i guess he's saying that like, um it's uh um yeah I, it's situationally to be honest with you if i'm in a an area there's one one specific spot that 
we go through great lengths to hide our foot tracks. Uh, like we really don't want people to know we're in there because it is like pretty close to an area that's well traveled. Um, and we like, you know, we get off the, like get off the trail for a while prior. Uh, and we definitely do things in, in that area. We hide our camp. I, I like to have a, a, a you know, tint that's a, a matte color, right? A, a dark gray, a green, a brown, something that's not going to stand out. Um, and also, and then there's other times when you're hunting in an area where there's probably more hunting pressure. I'd be totally like, want to throw my tent out there and make it visible so that if somebody's coming by, they go, Oh crap, somebody's already here. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll go hunt somewhere else, you know, and, and general people are going to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, they're going to want to avoid other hunters, especially from a backpacking perspective. If I, if I, you know, I could flip that around. If I hiked into a basin and somebody hid their tent and I just like, I never saw it. I just kept hunting. I could interfere with their hunt where if they had a tent that was visible and I walked in there, you know, I'm going to turn around and, and find a different spot to hunt. So I definitely do the same as I'm setting up camp. I'm, I'm kind of conscientious about that. So certain areas we want to hide and we want nobody to know we're there. Then yeah, we're definitely going to be, hide that as much as possible so so now i'm uh, curious steve like what are you doing actually you mentioned hiding foot tracks and all that just is the guy in the back of the group like turned around hiking backwards <laughs> with a broom and like sweeping foot tracks what are you talking no, about? no i would just say like we we're we're gonna get off the trail um half a mile before where you know you really need to probably yeah uh, and and just get off and even if you're walking five feet to the left of the trail or something like that just so People aren't like following your tracks and all of a sudden they just disappear and, or it's very clearly that you, you turned left right there. Right. And went up this hill. Um, we're, we, you know, go through efforts like that. Cause there's, there's places that, you know, you spend a lot of time and effort finding, uh, this one spot in particular, we've never, ever seen anybody hunt there, even though there's like plenty of hunters that, that pass by on the trail below. Um, it's just kind of a not obvious spot, but it's a fantastic hunting area. So we do our best to kind of keep that secret. Yeah. <laughs> is this uh i'm not trying to like get you to give away hints is this for elk or deer though i'm just curious uh it's a deer spot okay i was just thinking the the consequences of that for elk like potentially being in the area but then also getting into calling situations like it's i guess it's oh, right. thinking of oh it's a little bit more harder yeah you're gonna hop off and maybe somebody walk is walking past this basin that maybe they know isn't great but then all of a sudden you're also out there throwing locators or something it's like right oh, yeah clearly not much you could yeah when you're september there's not much you can do obviously but mule deer you could be you know you're just sitting there glassing you'd be quiet and like i've been like glassing you know bucks and then you like, hear people like walking down on the trail then you can you know they're going right by you yeah. But you're just like looking at this great buck and they're walking, you know, yeah, 500 yards below it. And the buck's like, they, they you know, it's, it's funny to watch the, the animals react because they just stop and stare and stare. And then once the, the voices go away, then they just kind of go back to feed. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. So, huh. uh, but yeah. And then at the truck, I kind of did the same thing. Like in general, I, um, I used to have this little Ford Focus and I would take that anywhere I could. So people would never, never know. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was that I was, that it was a hunter there. Um, and then my truck, I, I guess I try to hide, um, try to hide stuff. So, you know, you don't see a bow case or anything like that inside the truck. But, uh, and then to be honest, when I'm, if I pull into a trailhead and there's like five rigs parked there, I kind of like walk around and poke my head in and see like, <laughs> okay, that's a hunter. That's a hunter. That's not just to get an idea of what's in the country, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We always joke about too, <laughs> just thinking of, uh, 
like especially during show season when we travel and all these different companies with their rigs that are like fully kitted out some of which you oh. know that guys are personally driving but thinking of the right. consequences of guys who are basically advertising whether it's for a company or not but basically advertising this giant hunting presence and thinking oh that stinks when you're when you're trying to pull <laughs> off somewhere like clearly right. guys know what's going on there yeah, yeah there's uh, not a single sticker on my truck for a reason man i don't yeah. want people to know Cool. Um, next one uh, was, have you ever had any issues with bears? Do you carry any bear spray or other deterrent? I have not heard you guys mention this yet. Mm-hmm. We've been hunting in Colorado, haven't had any issues with black bears until last year. We had one come in while we were cutting up a bull that was pestering us, would not leave us alone. And I also ran into another bear just a couple days later while I was solo. Those encounters scared me a bit, and I'm thinking I may carry bear spray or a sidearm next time. Um, yeah, in Colorado, since you mentioned Colorado specifically, I sometimes carried a handgun, um, not always, and then um, I've always been with somebody, at least on my hunts in Colorado, so... Um, like my buddy Jared has sometimes carried bear spray. So probably between the two of us, one of us has had something in terms of a turret, whether it's a pistol or bear spray. Um, most of the time we've had something, um, but we haven't had any, we've seen bears. We haven't had any issues with bears or like encounters or, you know, bears in camp or bears on meat, nothing like that to where we're super cautious. We honestly don't typically think about it much. Um, I know that's, probably generally the same for you at least in idaho steve um yeah i honestly have uh no i've never never even thought about packing a sidearm for bears um yeah don't pack bear spray i mean you know solo hunting um yeah it just never even crossed my mind man i've i've hunted them enough to know how freaking um skittish they are and hard to hunt and they smell you they're running the other way mm-hmm. uh, but there's certainly scenarios where a hungry bear comes into a kill site or i think if you're um hunting area near you know bears can obviously get trained really easily um yeah. you know the most dangerous spots are like usually in a campground where there's trash cans and there's food available all the time and they just get used to human presence yeah uh, i'd say it's a very general rule like you're in the backcountry where not very many people go. The chances of a bear encounter, man, they got to be slim. So it's literally never on my mind. Um, but, you know, I've had, um, I've already had solo encounter with wolves and a solo encounter with a mountain lion, and I guess a, a bear is probably still to come. But once I have all three of those, I'm probably, you know, odds are I'm done for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> That's we'll just see, the trifecta. Yeah, um, but I've never. It's just not. I've never been on my mind, man. Never. So, and he didn't ask in this question, but I know it's, there's probably some people thinking, what about hanging food, that type of thing? Those per- oh. bear precautions. Um, the only time I would do that is if you're, you know, you're going to be in an area for multiple days. Um, so if you maybe pack in and have like a backcountry base camp and, you know, you're at least planning on, okay, this is base camp for three days or five days or seven days or whatever, then it's probably smart to be, um, you know, somewhat cautious with how you have your food stashed, um, and keeping a relatively clean camp. Um, it's probably worth the effort. Uh, but in general, if you're semi mobile, especially if you're in a spot for a night, like I, I wouldn't even think twice about not doing anything with your food or just keeping it on you. Um, 
yeah, we've hung it in the past. Like I said, if we're planning on being somewhere for five days and even then, you know, you never know. Is that overkill? Maybe. Um, yeah. Maybe it's just being smart, you know, with multiple days in the same spot. But um, yeah, it's not too much of a precaution and, you know, at least in the areas we've hunted. And then obviously it can be situationally dependent. It could be totally different story if you're hunting in Grizz country in Wyoming or Montana or something like that. Um, so definitely don't hear us say based off of um, our experiences in Colorado and Idaho that that's going to be the same everywhere. Um, you know, if you're in Grizz country, totally different story. Um, a good episode to go listen to would be episode 121. We talked about um, precautions and defense for bears, specifically for grizzly bears. Got into the discussions on you know pistol versus bear spray, which one's better and when, what are the pros and cons on the handgun side, cartridge selection. Like So that's a really good episode to check out if you guys want to hear more about both preventing encounters, but then also... Um, you know, carrying some sort of uh, defense against bears. Go check out episode 121. And I, you know, obviously we go to Alaska, it's like a whole different world. And yeah. and we're probably, you know, like the overreactive to, to the grizzly bears and stuff where you, you know, we're on, uh, you talk to people that live up there, hunt up there all the time. And they're like, yeah, take these precautions. You know, other than that, you're fine. Um, but in Idaho, I yeah, never, don't really think about it. Oh, I just still think of that one morning when I, I didn't even know it, but you were like up at three in the morning with your rifle, uh, swearing <laughs> that a grizzly bear was outside of camp. Uh, I, yeah, either <laughs> dreamed that, had too much whiskey, or the bear was really there and everyone else is crazy. So. <laughs> uh, I think it was the whiskey. Um, uh, all right, cool. Uh, let's see. Speaking of Alaska, Ian wrote in and said, thanks for the extra podcast right now. To stave off the insanity of this current time, I am designing my packing list for a 2021 caribou hunt. We're doing a three-person hunt in September, a drop camp from a super cub, and I'm limited to 50 pounds. Do you mind sharing any of your packing lists from Alaska? And yes, I'm not, he said, and then yes, I'm trying not to pack my fears. <laughs> um, I'm a, one yeah, go ahead. No, the one, the first thing that jumped to mind is, and I'm sure you've, uh, get this is customers call in and be like, I'm doing a 10 day caribou hunt. I need a, a you know, your 6,400 6, bag. Yep, yeah. yep. It's like, no man, you're, you're getting dropped off. You're camping literally where they drop you off. Um, and, and you just need a day pack because you're just going to be running out for the day and back to your camp. So that's yeah. just the first thing that jumped to my mind. Yeah, for sure. I, that comes up consistently of, yeah, I'm doing a fly-in hunt in Alaska. Do I need the 48 or the 64? And it's like, well, maybe you don't need either of those, to be honest with you. So that's a that's a conversation. I I personally did run the 48 um, when we were in Alaska. But as you mentioned, it's like sucked down. I was running it with no lid. I basically had it compressed into day mode. So um, yeah, packs aside. I'm assuming this guy, you know, he mentioned, obviously, they're doing a drop camp and he's limited to 50 pounds. But it has to be with the transporter slash guide slash outfitter providing camp. Um, right. That's I mean, you can't, light. that's yeah. light. If the, if that's a 50 pound limit, um, I don't have that's the light. info. We'll have to follow up, but I'm assuming that that's just essentially for personal gear and that whoever's dropping them is dropping them with camp, meaning shelter yeah. and all that. I mean, flying in on a super cub, they're limited on weight. Um, so they might be way more stringent than, than what we did. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's I don't know. That's, that's definitely light. And I'd say it's, that probably isn't weapon and food would be my guess. 50 right. pounds of just gear 
and then whether or not that's sleeping in there, I'm not, it just depends. That super cup maybe thinks it is. Yeah. Um, but okay. anyways, yeah. Um, yeah. So it, we don't have a specific gear list. It partially does depend on all those factors we just talked about. Um, when we went, we were on our own in terms of we brought our shelters, we brought our food, we brought everything, and that can vary based on the hunt. So we'd be happy to follow up about that. Um, also, episode 197 and 198 are episodes we recapped our September caribou hunt from this past fall. Um, so yeah, maybe don't hit a A to Z gear list, Steve, but like, what are some of the things that stand out of, aside from your normal, quote unquote, normal hunting gear, like Alaska, September caribou, what are some of the things that come to mind to make sure that you do have with you? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, you just need to get on the phone with uh, with the, the uh, air service dropping you off and ask questions. So um, the tent is obviously the, the biggest one that jumps out to me is because, you know, 95% of the tents that are okay in the lower 48 are not okay on that hunt, uh, as we learned. Because um, you, every time I've done it, everyone I've talked to, like in a seven-day hunt or whatever it is, you're going to have like one to three days of 50 mile an hour winds and rain and just terrible, terrible weather that a lot of tents aren't going to hold up to. So, um, find out what they suggest on that. You're, you're most likely going to want a four season tent and, and you're going to, not that you need protection from the snow cause you probably wouldn't get much, but it's, it's the, the structure. Wind. So yeah. structure. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not necessarily like September. It's, you know, I think you could see a, maybe a little bit more extremes than the lower 48, but it's not like you need a negative 20 degree bag. I think, you know, 15 degrees is probably plenty. Um, the, a cot, um, I would ask them, you know, on our, uh, the moose hunt I did, um, a cot was absolutely essential. Like hard ground did not exist. Um, the first caribou hunt we did, we got dropped off. Um, we probably, you know, we brought cot, we brought cots every single time. Uh, the first caribou hunt, um, it was super, super rocky area that we got dropped off on. And I think you could have spent, you know, half an hour or whatever and like carved a out spot. a spot. Um, and it would have been fine, but we just threw the cots down on top of it and that was great. And then this last one, uh, didn't need it at all. We were basically on nice dry ground. So it, you know, that's situational, but I said after the moose hunt, it was like, oh man, you have to have a cop because it was like the, where we were at is just no such thing as like hard, dry ground to sleep on. It didn't exist. So, mm-hmm. um, one thing that jumped out to my, out of mind is a, um, obviously you're going to need some type of in reach, some type of communication device. Um, battery charger banks are, are pretty handy to have. I'd have like two of them. And then, uh, on this caribou hunt, I brought up a little mini folding solar panel. Um, and that ended up being pretty, you know, pretty vital, able to recharge devices, um, when, when communication, you know, electronic communication is your only way back out, making sure that you're able to recharge those is pretty essential. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the one I got, I bought on Amazon quite a few years back and, you know, it's pretty cheap and it works fine. So, yeah. Other than that, you know, it's just basic backpacking stuff. Uh, and then hip waders, uh, some type of hip waiter that was, you know, obviously we went through that last year, Mark of trying to find that stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Waiters and whether that's just a quick overboot for crossings or whether you're going to be spending a lot of time again, I'd kind of talk with, um, talk with your flight service and see what kind of country you're expecting to be in to make that decision. Um, if you're in an area where everything's required to stay bone on, you're required to take ribs whole, you might consider bringing a saw. That's not something 
yeah i normally overtake on a lower 48 stuff but it was super handy up there for that when you're you know trying to cut ribs off hole that type of thing um yeah i don't know i mean i i don't know if it was just obviously you've done it a couple times steve in terms of caribou specifically i've just done it the once but i was fully expecting it to be much more extreme in terms of cold which it was it was cold, especially the when like chills. the wind days. The wind Horror, chill was yeah. cold, yeah. But I also didn't, yeah. I was like, I had my over mid, like I had all kinds of cold, cold weather gear that I didn't, didn't quote unquote need. But it's also Alaska, you never know. So, talk to the air service, and this is going to be a really good indicator if they're good or not. Is if they can't, if they don't have like really like a good document to email you of like, yeah. here's our gear list, here's what we suggest. To me, that's a giant red flag. Like the first company we went with was kind of a train wreck. It was very like information wasn't there. That's a very good reflection of what their business is. And you're probably going to be dealing with a train wreck when you get in there. If they're emailing you, giving you the information that you need, have a good gear list of this is what, you know, we highly suggest you have. Here's optional things. Um, then that, you know, that's going to go a long ways. But Alaska is such a big state. I have no idea where this guy's going. I'm sure it just, you know, it could vary so widely on the gear that you need, Um, you know, cots and weather and stuff like that, that that I would really lean heavily into them. And and if you lean into them and they don't give you the answers you want, I would, that would raise up some red flags. So, yeah. And one more random thing kind of related to waders, but gators, Um, good, Mm. just below the knee gators. Um, If you're in any country like we were, we're going to be critical for sure. Yeah. Um, Okay, cool. One more. Um. I hesitate, Steve. It's it's foot slash boot related. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh no! The, Don't get me going. The dead horse. We're just going to continue to beat it. Um, but Ryan wrote in and said he had a pro tip for the podcast. Uh, he said his uncle is a foot doctor and made him a pair of custom orthotics, and he's worn them every day for years in all of his shoes, whether it's his hiking boots, dress shoes, his casual shoes, whatever. Um, he said he had high arches, so the custom orthotics are molded to fit him perfectly. That's worth mentioning, especially for if if you have anything. We talk all the time about you know everybody has a different foot, but if you have some specific issue, whether it's wide feet, whether it's high arches, whether it's whatever, um, then I think it is worth looking at like a specific solution, something like a custom orthotic, or even thinking of um, you know. Early in the podcast, we talked with the guys from Lathrop and Sons, and they have that uh, background being um, custom orthotics and all that. So there's certainly guys who are, it's worth going with um, some sort of custom solution. And like he said, it for him, it's a custom orthotic that he can wear in his hiking boots, but also wear all around um, for sure. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly guys where just they're going to always struggle to find a quote unquote normal boot that fits their foot just based off of the structure of their foot um so maybe that custom solution is worthwhile i think it it, before like the lathrop and sons guys i had no idea that custom orthotics were a thing so um if guys are out there and they've been struggling with boots maybe it's worth looking to see what you can do in that regard yeah i had uh um talked a little bit about my back being really messed up so i've got a chiropractor that uh, he's a fellow hunter here in boise and gone to him uh and He's like, hey, dude, let's make some custom orthotics for you. And we had a made, and they are—they're actually really, really high quality. The the problem for me was they're so they raised the heel so much that no matter what 
shoe I put them in, they basically take my heel out of the heel cup that's designed for the boot. Um, so it's like, it's a weird rub spot and just doesn't work. Um, but the, the, the quality, the cushioning of them, they're fantastic. So, um, I would think it just, yeah, I'd like to, I thought about going back and like seeing, do they have like a different model? That's like not quite, um, pushing my heel so far up from the bottom of the shoe, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You mentioned to me the other day, Steve, you actually looked at two separate hikes with different footwear and you were seeing a difference in performance, but not perceived effort. So just to continue to beat this dead horse, <laughs> share your findings with us. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, I have a hike, you know, I said, I live in the foothills above Boise. So there's, uh, I could just literally hike out the front door. Um, there's one hike just straight out. That's, uh, just from my house to a trail forked and back is, it's exactly four miles and 800 feet. Um, so two weeks ago, I got, um, he said, I'm continuing to look for a boot that, that's going to work. There's a boot out there that can work for me. I, I just got to find it. Um, so I had ordered a Zamberland a boot I saw at a SHOT Show. Um, it's called their Baltura Light, which uh, honestly, very, very impressed with the quality, the construction. It actually has a grippy rubber sole. I believe it is Vibram, but it's a different um, rubber compound. Uh, it's got some cushioning built into it. Uh, just like, like if you, even if you take the insole out, right, it's got like some give to it where some of the other ones I've, I've been testing. If you like the insole is the cushioning, um, and they come with really cheap, just garbage insoles. It's, it blows me away. Um, but, uh, the belt, those, uh, Zamberlins are nice. Anyways, put them on, did it, did this hike, um, and my goal at the time was just like, I'm going to do this in under one hour. So basically I could do 15 minute miles out of 45 pound pack on. Um, so it's, you know, clipping along pretty good. Uh, I did it in one hour and one minute. It's basically as fast as I could go, uh, without running, right? Like just speed hiking. Um, and then, uh, just two days ago, uh, I, you know, at lunchtime, um, did the exact same thing. Um, and then, but wore some super light innovate, they're called innovate rock light 370, I believe, uh, super light kind of mid trail running shoe, uh, did the exact same hike knew I was like clipping along. Um, I didn't like want to look at my watch. I was recording the whole thing. You know, I didn't want to look at it. I just did the, did the whole hike and, and about halfway down, I looked down at my watch. I was like, Holy crap, I'm cruising. Um, kept up the same pace, got back to the house and I did it in 54 minutes. Um, so I was full seven minutes faster and I, I, it's dangerous to compare hike to hike, but my perceived effort was like, that was way easier and I was seven minutes faster. Um, so it's, you know, whatever, take it for what it's worth. But I think it's evidence that a, there's two things going on there. One, my foot could actually flex and I could like the natural, uh, you know, mechanics of my body are working and I'm able to hike faster and B, you know, each foot is about a pound lighter, um, so that my effort that it took to do that, right? Like, yeah. I don't know how many steps I did in four miles, right? Uh, it's pretty substantial. It's three, uh, was it 5,280 feet in a mile? Yep. Anyway, you can do the quick math. I'm sure it's like a couple thousand steps. It's a couple thousand pounds. I didn't lift up with each foot, right? Um, so that perceived effort was different. I mean, it was pretty like, okay, yeah, seven minutes faster is, that's pretty substantial time difference. Uh, mm-hmm. obviously that's, you know, when you're hiking and you're moving slower, uh, those things aren't as, you know, uh, amplified, but it is some evidence, at least for me that, uh, what I suggest is, um, yeah, or my thoughts, right. That are, 
yeah. but the boot does slow you down and it's heavier and it takes more effort to move that boot. So yeah. I think it's, you got a way to, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> done on the boot thing. I've gotten re- so many emails of guys saying I'm crazy and I'm an idiot. And it's like, yeah. all right. Here's whatever. further proof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, my had, feet like them, your feet like boots. Yeah, I guess, you know, they said, yeah, find what works for you. We had all these acronyms for when we totally had no idea what this podcast series was going to be. And we said TSS for like the stopgap show or the shutdown show or whatever. But I think it's just evolved into the shoe show. <laughs> I did. I don't know that we mentioned this in the many ramblings we've had in the last week on boots, though. But going back to what you said about uh, weight and perceived effort and basically that weight over the distance. I want to say it was uh, Rob Shaw's crew that years ago did some sort of mm. like research and basically a pound on your feet, like so an extra pound in footwear. I want to say he equated it to four to five pounds of, your if, of your pack. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like a one-to-one like, oh, these boots are one pound heavier. It's like having a one pound you know, lift the weight, jacket man. on yeah. or it's a one pound weight in my pack. Yeah. Because of your movement and you're actually lifting that weight. And then also think of stabilizing it going down some as well that because it's specifically on your feet and for that motion that it's not just a pound, it's actually this exponential um, influence, I guess. Yeah. I, I said, I, you know, go up in the mountains with a, a, the heavier the shoe at the end of the day, you're just, you burnt more energy. And I, anytime I've done it, I just feel like, ah, oh, I'm more tired. The, the lighter the shoe, it's like, ah, oh, that day was kind of easy. You know, um, it's interesting. Coming from, um, the mountain biking world, like, you know, obviously weight on your bike, you know, when you get into racing, saving every, you know, people start counting grams. Um, the, weight on your tires the weight of your wheels your rims um is exponentially like well that's where you start right like it's what you know that that's where you start saving weight because uh, that's going to have the biggest difference um on how fast you can ride because it's that rotational energy of getting that moving getting that weight moving and same thing you know just taking the energy to get your foot up off the ground and then lower it down mm-hmm. um yeah it's exponential yeah cool I promise well, we're done. Don't I, ask me any more I, shoe questions. I was just going to say, whatever we talk about next, I can guarantee you that we're going to have a full episode where we don't mention shoes or boots. <laughs> so whatever the next episode is, it's not going to include that. <laughs> cool. Well, that's a wrap for today. Um, guys, if you have any other questions, topics you want us to hit, go ahead and shoot us an email to podcast at XO Mountain Gear. Hope you're all doing well. Um, again, just wanted to get these episodes out there for... Those of us who have some downtime, maybe stuck at home, maybe, um, you know, looking for ways to pass the time, got some good feedback. Hope these have been helpful for you guys. Uh, yeah. Talk to you soon, whether it's via the podcast or shoot us that message to podcast at exomongear.com.